Neva College, Taylor Falls, Pennsylvania, Friday afternoon, October 15, 1971, Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, with the best students in the class present on this particular occasion. Continuing the study of archaeology and the Old Testament by Unger and taking up today the reign of Saul and the reign of King David. I guess that's important, all right? Now then, uh, do any of you have questions from uh, last time before we start in with Saul and David? And did you notice there's a gap in the parts that's listed in the assignments? Or did you go on studying where we left off? All right, they left out that period about the, uh, the Book of Judges, which is, in my opinion, important but extremely complicated. The tangled problems of chronology in the Book of Judges, I have found this uh, very boring in class in previous years and uh, decided to leave it out. You can study it yourself if you want to, but it's not part of the course. And Israel on the eve of the monarchy, both of these are essentially not archaeology but history. I'll only mention one thing about the period of the Judges, and that is that um, it cannot be telescoped to less than 300 years without holding that statements of the Bible are false. In the book of Judges, I believe it is chapter 12, verse 33, just a moment, and I will see, well, it isn't 33, um, In the book of Judges, about chapter 12, anyhow, there was a man named Jephthah, and he got in a dispute with the Ammonites and about the possession of some territory. And they claimed it was theirs, and he claimed it belonged to Israel. And uh, in the course of this argument, he said, um, Israel has already held this for 300 years. If you people have a real claim to it, why didn't you bring your claim before this? So uh, this... This statement indicates that at the time when he spoke this, and this wasn't even quite at the end of the period of judges yet, he was one of these judges, or champions, that Israel had held this land that would be since the death of Moses then for 300 years. And therefore, the book of Judges has to be 300 plus X, but at least 300, not less. And the late chronology of Dr. Albright and others compresses this to about 160 from 300. This does not bother them because they can easily hold that the Bible contradicts itself. It bothers us because we believe the Bible is the Word of God and therefore does not contradict itself. And so um, this is um, a crucial issue here. Miss Sarah. Well, just a minute again and I'll see if I can find it for sure for you. Judges chapter 11, 
And one of them said, Good morning, Father Abraham. And the second one said, Good morning, Father Isaac. And the third said, Good morning, Father Jacob, intending to make fun of the old man. And he turned on them and said, Young gentlemen, I do not happen to be any of the worthies whom you mentioned. As a matter of fact, I am Saul, the son of Kish. I am out hunting for my father's asses, and lo, I have found them. <laughs> so that was that. Now, uh, Saul was uh, chosen to be king by what? This was God's choice, although he turned out to be a bad king. This, I think, also was God's intention. These people were wrong in asking for a king. Although, way back in Moses' day, it was anticipated that they would have a king, and in Deuteronomy you have the ground rules of the kingship. Uh, the king must be a member of their own people, not a foreigner. He must be a man that fears God. He must be a student of Scripture and reading the law of God, and so on. So this was, to have a king was not wrong in itself. But the reason they demanded a king at the time when Saul was set up to be king was an unworthy and wrong reason and indicated lack of faith in God. They had two main reasons. One was they didn't want to be different from the other countries. And the second reason was that um, they um, felt that um, they needed a king. They had to have one to protect them against enemies that were around them. The other countries had kings who were real kings, not like today, but real kings whose word was law. And uh, this is much more uh, effective. It isn't more just or right, but it's certainly more efficient than a democracy or grassroots type of government such as the Israelites had. And so uh, because of these two reasons, for protection against enemies, and because they didn't want to, let's say, uh, bear the, uh, the cross or the stigma of being different from other people, they demanded a king. Samuel was really... Uh, he didn't like this. He prayed about it all night. And the Lord told him the next day, go ahead, put him up a king. It's not you, they've rejected us, me. So uh, Saul became king. He turned out to be, just as Samuel had predicted, a burden to the country. Samuel said, he'll draft your sons to serve in his army. He'll draft your daughters to be his pastry cooks and confectioners. He'll take the best of your grape vineyards and olive orchards and so forth and so forth. And you will cry to God when that day comes and God won't hear you. Okay, Samuel, we want a king. And so they got one. And God gave them a heavy dose of, let's say, oppressive and tyrannical uh, big government so that when they got a real godly king like David, they would appreciate what they got. David, in spite of his faults on occasion, a man after God's own heart. Now... Saul's first victory was against the Ammonites. Nahash, king of Ammon, that's Ammon today, capital of Jordan, same place. Nahash threatened a little city of the Israelites. He's a schoolyard bully, he won't fight anybody's own side. Jabesh Gilead. He picks them off, you know, one at a time. Jabesh Gilead tells you surrender or else. Okay, Jabesh, what's the or else? Well, all right. If you don't, why, I'll fight you. Oh, we'll surrender. We can't fight you. All right, I'll be around Monday and we'll line all the men and boys up and put out their right eyes. And I'm going to boast on it all over the land of Israel. Nahesh is the mighty warrior that put out the right eyes of the men and boys of Jabesh Gilead. What a guy. And uh, Saul heard this news. He'd been chosen king, but he hadn't done any kinging yet. 
He had to prove himself in battle really to be king. He knew that perfectly well. Just being elected didn't, didn't count of itself. So, um, or chosen. So he goes there and, and um, liberates the Nahash from this world and defeats him and saves the citizens of Jabesh Gilead from this awful fate. This made Saul the nation's hero, as of course it would. And after that, he was again proclaimed king, and this time, no doubt about it, Saul was really king. Incidentally, the citizens of Jabesh Gilead never forgot that. When Saul had been killed by the Philistines, the men of Jabesh Gilead marched through the night at the risk of their life and took down the body of Saul and his sons from the wall of Beth Shan, where the, the uh, Philistines had hung them up and buried them decently. They never forgot, even though Saul died a, a moral wreck, they never forgot what Saul and his youth had done for Jabesh Gilead. Now, um, um, the Philistines had him, Saul won this against the Ammonites. This made him king uh, without dispute. What advantage did the um, Philistines have over the Israelites at this period, just before Saul became king? Mr. Brown, what was it? Yeah, and iron, of course, not just iron, but iron tools and weapons. This was a secret invented by the Hittites and shared by nobody but their friends. The Philistines had it, the Israelites didn't have it. The Israelites are in the Bronze Age, the Philistines are in the Iron Age. Uh, I wonder, Mr. Johnson, could an iron tool or weapon be sharpened and made more effective than a bronze or brass one? If you had to choose uh, which to use to fight the enemy, which would you choose? A bronze, a bayonet, or a steel one? Well, a steel one can take a sharper edge and hold its temper better. This gave the Philistines an edge over the Israelites. Literally as well as figuratively. (laughs) And uh, this um, resulted in, uh, of course, God's providence is wider and controls all these things ultimately. But this resulted in the fact that the Israelites were at a distinct handicap, the Philistines and other Canaanites, had chariots of iron. One of them was um, had um, was it uh, Sisera? He had nine hundred chariots of iron. That's a real armored division for those times. And the Israelites went on foot to fight against these things. You see the the disadvantage. Only by God being on their side could they possibly hope to win. It's amazing they won what they did win. And they were handicapped in war, and they were handicapped in agriculture, and also economically. The Philistines saw to it. They kept this secret. This was their special privilege. And if the Israelites wanted a, a plow point or a plowshare sharpened, go to a Philistine blacksmith shop and they charged plenty for it. If they wanted anything else like a kitchen knife or an axe or anything like that, either made or sharpened, you had to go to a Philistine shop to get this done and pay for it. This kept the Israelites at a disadvantage. Now, Saul and David. Saul started it and David finished it. They effectively conquered the Philistines. I mean, they did, so it, so it stuck. And this broke the Philistine iron monopoly, and after this, the process of smelting iron from ore and of making, um, forging it into, into steel, making strong and tempered tools and weapons was anybody's property that wanted to do it. Now, Saul. What impression did you get of Saul um, uh, from uh, 
Mrs. Johnson, from what you read in the book, would you say he was a, oh, a sort of a member of the social elite? <laughs> he was a crude, um, rough and ready, um, rustic chieftain. Perhaps this wasn't so noticeable in his day because most everybody else was somewhat like that too. But Saul was crude. You can tell it in his recorded language, some of which um, certainly wasn't polite. And uh, uh, his whole attitude. Well, now, this is typical of Saul. He was Israel's first king, but the country and the king, everything was on a humble and poor scale. And so David came along and later Solomon really jumped it up. Saul's hometown, Gibeah of Benjamin, excavated in the 1920s and 30s by Dr. Albright. And they found the buried ruins of Saul's palace, if you can call it a palace. Uh, Unger says it resembled a prison rather than a palace or a fortress. Uh, did you ever see a prison that was an architectural beauty spot? Well, they're made for strength, not for good looks. And the Saul's fortress was discovered in 170 feet by 155 feet with walls and towers at the corners. And they found a number of layers to this. The lowest layer was before the time of Saul, and there was Saul's, and on top of that there was yet another one, and on top of that still another. The one nearest the surface was from Maccabean times. That'd be 100 and something before Christ. And Saul's was the next to the bottom one. It was built to see where there had been one, one city or settlement before. Massive stone construction, deep walls, like a dungeon rather than a royal residence. Very rugged and heavy, big stones. They're strong, all right, but um, certainly lacking in architectural grace. And they're not like the kind of thing that Solomon put up around Jerusalem. Poverty and a simple rural life quite unsophisticated and lacking in highly civilized refinements. Now, uh, somebody could write a term paper in psychology on the deterioration of Saul. This is the disintegration of a personality. He had everything going for him when he started as king. He was good-looking, popular from a well-known family, and everything was favorable. But he went to pieces by stages, by disobeying God. And the first stage, um, he interfered with the function of the priests in offering sacrifice, which he had no right to do. The second stage, he was commanded to destroy the Amalekites, who had a long record of unprovoked hostility to Israel. He saved alive the king of the Amalekites, a nice exhibit, you know, to bring him back to, to his capital, and um, the best of the sheep and cattle which had been commanded to be destroyed. You might wonder, why would God command these animals to be destroyed? They hadn't done anything wrong. The answer to this, the favorite method of balancing the national budget in Old Testament times was to raid another country. It's hard on the raidees, but it's amazing what it does for the raiders if they get away with it. So you want to get some money and get things back in the black and out of the red? Well, raid the Ammonites or somebody. Take everything they got. Kill the people and take everything. Why, it's wonderful what you can do. And, uh, but you see, that was all too common in ancient times. Now, this raid against the Amalekites, or Amalekites, this is the execution of the judgment of God. And nobody in later times is to be able to say this was a raid for loot or for booty. 
All the Israelites that get out of this are some uh, corns and bunions, lifters on their feet, some marching. And they have to take anything for themselves so that nobody can say they did it for profit. And here they go and take a lot of these things and save them alive. And at this point, Samuel appears. You know, the old wet blanket. Always some wet blanket on Saul. And Saul comes out with his pious and pious tone of voice. Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have carried out the commandment of the Lord. You have, have you? What's that noise I hear? Sounds to me like the mooing of cows and the bleeding of sheep. Hold it, Samuel. Just a minute, I'll explain everything. The people forced my hand. And we did it for religion. To save them for offerings to the Lord. Now, here's two alibis. People forced my hand. What kind of a king is it that goes blaming stuff off on the people? This is just like saying, I'm not fit to be king. I can't control the country. The people forced my hand. And the second, we did it for the sake of religion. How be if I'd hold up a savings and loan somewhere and give the money to Geneva College to improve the Bible department? <laughs> would that make it right? Mr. Mary, would that be right? Of course not. And uh, so this Saul had no ground to stand on. That was the second um, uh, step in his downfall. After this, Samuel would have nothing further to do with him. He walked out on him that day. The third, what was the third and last stage in the sad deterioration of Saul? Mrs. Johnson, what was it? Yeah, the witch. This woman called a witch. Under explains this. What does he say this ought to be called? It's not what we mean really by a witch. What do you, what do you call these people that are seeing? Just call it medium. Yeah, sure. Like a spiritist or spiritualist medium. And uh, Under has quite a little piece about this. These were, this was very common in early Old Testament times. A good bit has been found among the Hittite remains. And strange to say, these mediums were nearly always women. Is that true today? Not, not always, although I think maybe a majority of them are. But in, in Old Testament times, this was, they had a monopoly on this almost. I never heard of a male spirit medium in Old Testament times. I don't know why this is. Old women, supposed to be able to get you in touch with the spirits of the departed dead, Strictly forbidden in the word of God. There was a death penalty on it. And yet Saul does it. He had himself forbidden it early in his reign. And yet he does it in his desperation. Samuel has left him. God has abandoned him. He can no longer get in touch with God by any means that's open to him. So in desperation he turns to the spirits and gets in touch with Samuel. Now, people differ whether Samuel really appeared to Saul or not. You can read any amount of controversial discussion of this. In my opinion, he did, but not because of the so-called witch of Ender, who seems to have been herself scared out of her wits by what happened here, but because God permitted it on this one occasion. Anyhow, this was the last. Saul was killed that night by the Philistines, and that opened the way for David to be king. This word should be translated a medium or a um, uh, spiritualist, a woman who is a mistress of a divining demon or a necromancer seeking contact with the dead. Now, David built up quite an empire, and Solomon finished it after him. And uh, you can make a case that in the reign of Solomon, which is coming up later, 
Israel briefly held all the territory that God had promised to Abraham. If you don't insist absolutely on every exact inch of it, then substantially all the territory that God had promised to Abraham, they held briefly at the time of Solomon. Um, there's two um, explanations of how this could be done. How, how, how do you suppose that a little country like Israel could build up an empire here? And the answer to that, in the first place, there was a temporary law of uh, nearly a hundred years here between the great powers, the Hittites, Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt. The great powers are all absolutely done in and tied out. They're taking a breather here, getting ready to fight again, of course. But uh, for uh, something like a century here, a little less, nobody's doing anything. It's all quiet on the international front. This gave an opening to... David and Solomon that, humanly speaking, they couldn't have had if this hadn't been the case. The, the, uh, the lack of the active power struggle among the really great nations of the world of that day. <clears throat> and the other is, um, well, um, would you call um, David and Solomon, uh, let's say, uh, perpetrators of aggressive warfare? What does Unger, Mr. James, what does Unger say about that? Got any idea on that? Well, we're opposed to aggressive warfare. Is this right? Defensive warfare, maybe. This, Christians differ about this, too. But at least aggressive warfare, I think every, every Christian would agree. Aggressive warfare is wrong. Simply to attack somebody else. Uh, you can argue the rightness and wrongness of defensive warfare, but aggressive warfare is pretty hard to be a Christian to build any kind of a case for that. Now, uh, Andre says, well, what does he say? Mr. Sturgeon, you know what he says? Yeah, now, these neighboring countries, ones at a real distance, David and Solomon made alliances with them. People 500 miles away. Hiram, king of Tyre, for example. They didn't try to conquer him, he didn't try to conquer them. They made an alliance. But the nearby ones that were around the border of Israel, which eventually became the Empire of Solomon, uh, in a number of cases, they attacked Israel. And then David fought back and conquered them. Now, that's a little different from David starting it. If somebody attacks you and you fight back and you win, well, uh, you won. So that's not. And um, others, David made overtures of friendship and they sent back a resounding insults and so forth and uh, evidently intended to attack him and then uh, he guarded against this and so in this way they got into an armed conflict and David won. But this is not, strictly speaking, aggressive warfare. Now Jerusalem, the capital. Was this Saul's capital? Saul had Jerusalem for his capital? No, Saul's capital was Gibeah. Gibeah of the, of the tribe of Benjamin. This is what I was telling you, been excavated by Dr. Albright. David made Jerusalem his capital. When you read in the Bible about the city of David, this is not Jerusalem. This is Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. That's the city of David. That's what the angel said to the shepherds. In the city of David, the Savior is born. Bethlehem, house of bread in Hebrew, in, in English, American English Wheatville, <coughs> house of bread. And uh, David was, um, after the death of Saul, see, 
David was promptly proclaimed king of his own tribe only, however, the tribe of Judah. His own tribesmen put him up to be king over them, southern part of the country, and reigned over the tribe of Judah with uh, distinguished success for seven and a fraction years. And then uh, uh, the running conflict that had been going on between the adherents of David and those of Saul petered out. You see, after Saul's death, there was a die-hard lingering attempt on the part of some people in the northern part of the country to continue the dynasty of Saul with some of his surviving heirs. This came to nothing. And uh, finally, the way was clear then. For David to be made king over the whole country, he was then crowned king a second time and was king over the entire nation for 33 more years for a total, therefore, reign of 40 years, 7 and 33. Now, they had not had a real national capital. And you see the real political astuteness of David here. Where are you going to put the national capital? Here are the 12 tribes of Israel. Whichever tribe you put it in, there's going to be 11 dissatisfied ones. Where are you going to put it? And when our country was being organized and they wanted a place for the national capital under the old Articles of Confederation, there's the 13 original colonies and every last one of them wanted to have the capital. New York wanted it, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Virginia, etc. So wherever you put it, there's going to be 12 colonies unhappy about it. So they decided to let nobody have it. They marked out a federal district on the mudflats of the lower Potomac River. It's in there between Maryland and Virginia. And um, marked this off for a federal district. It was a part of no colony and of no state. And it was reclaimed. You see it today, and it's rather beautiful. In Washington, D.C., there's no utility poles. They're all the wires underground. But it was a mud hole when they first started working on it. And... Um, this became the national capital, you see. It's not a part of any state. Well, in the same way, David, with great political acumen, figured if we're going to have this um, without arousing a lot of opposition and antipathy, it'll have to be put in a place that nobody can claim was theirs beforehand. Here's Jerusalem, a natural place, way up on a height. It's 2,600 feet above sea level, 3,700 feet above the Dead Sea. 2,600 above the Mediterranean, way up on the top of a height, of a ridge. Uh, very commanding location. Uh, from that standpoint, uh, ideal for a capital. On the border of Judah and Benjamin, as the land was divided between the tribes. But you see, it was held by the Jebusites. Uh, <clears throat> very uh, warlike and rather powerful, but small tribes. Uh, in Joshua's day, Israel had captured part of Jerusalem and lost it again. And it's been held since then down to David's day, 300 and some years, by the Jebusites, from whom this is akin to the word J-E-R-U-S, J-E-B-U-S, that's related to the word Jerusalem. And then David um, recognized it would be a great feat of arms to capture this. The Jebusites were so confident that this city could never be captured that they even joked about it. And they put out this point. David will never get in here unless he first takes away the blind and the lame. We're putting the blind and the cripples, the blind and the lame, to guard the approaches to our citadel. And David can't even get past them? All right, he'll never get in here. This was a point. 
find in the land. And David made an offer. Whoever could, uh, among his armed men could lead a party to capture the citadel of Jerusalem, and he'd be promoted to be chief and captain. He's going to be commander-in-chief uh, of the armed forces. And this was done. Let's see. Was it Joab that, that did this? And it was considered an amazing feat. And this brings up the question, how was it done? You find in the King James Bible it says by the gutter, or otherwise translated the water course. And it was supposed uh, for a long time that David's men uh, got into the city through this um, so-called warm shaft, which was a rather narrow uh, tunnel for water made by the ancient Jebusites. We'll take up that in a minute or two. And that this is how they got in. They sneaked in through this water channel underground. But uh, now Dr. Unger says, although this is still somewhat debated by people, that the word should not be translated the gutter, but the, the, uh, the hook. Did you ever see people doing any alpine mountain climbing with uh, rappling the car with a hook that climbs into a crevice in the rock and then pull themselves up? Disneyland, they have a man-made mountain there. Have you seen it? Uh, twice a day, somebody goes up there by this method. Did you ever see it, Mr. Brown? Can do it? You look like they're going to fall and break their neck, but they never do. They always never do. <laughs> Anyhow, this, according to Unger and many other scholars today, is the proper translation of this word, and uh, the word has been found other places than in the Bible more recently, indicating this means climbing by means of a hook. In other words, grappling your way up the steep slope of the cliff. Jerusalem is faced on the east, but the very steep cliff goes down into the Hagrin Valley. Mount of Olives is on the other side. A more gentle slope on the far side, but it was fortified all the way around. And in David's day, in the Jebusite time, it was only a tiny fraction, at the very most eight acres, of what the present day city of Jerusalem is. There's a map in your book there, of page, on page, uh, where is it here? Yeah, 207. Just that little part that's marked Opal there. This should be compared with another map on page 273 that we'll come to later. 273 of Hezekiah's day, 700 B.C., therefore uh, 300 years after David's time. Now then, uh, uh, this uh, was captured then by grappling with a hook and getting up there before the Jebusites were aware. Evidently, uh, they considered that um, nobody could possibly get up that steep side. And therefore, their principal guarding and defenses would be on the other side, where the slope was more gentle. And uh, here David's men uh, surprised him by getting up the steep side and capturing the place. And he made this his capital, which had not previously been in the territory of any tribe. So uh, nobody could rightly claim that they had the ground for complaint or be jealous. Uh, this was called David's city. His men captured it from the enemy. And it was not taken out of the tribe of any tribe, although technically it was in the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, but they hadn't held it. David got it from the Jebusites. So that was that. Now, this uh, Warren shaft here, Jerusalem, you realize, has always been and is today scarce of water. There are no springs of water on the top of this hill. 2,600 above sea level, and that's the highest point anywhere around. It's not surprising that water doesn't run out of the ground at that height. It could only do so by underground channels from higher places somewhere else, you see. 
And so uh, they have saved water in cisterns. A good part of the old city of Jerusalem to this day is lined with cisterns, which they save water. It's said to taste a little bit uh, oh, like it had moss nests in it and so forth, but uh, <laughs> it's still drinkable in the, um, underneath the old city of Jerusalem. Then outside in the valley, at the bottom of these steep cliffs, there are two springs, two natural springs. The one is called Gihon on the east side it's in the, in the Kidron Valley, between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. This is today called the Fountain of the Virgins. In Old Testament times, Gihon, G-I-H-O-N. And the other one, just south of the old city of Jerusalem, but in the early times outside the wall, both of these works. And this was called um, the, <coughs> the Enrogel, or um, it also had another name. This was just south of it. Now then... Uh, it was discovered by a man named Sir Charles Warren, who lived nearly a hundred years ago, I believe, that the Jebusites, so way back in Abraham's day, 2000 B.C., had found a way to bring that water. It's a never-failing spring. It isn't an awful lot of water, but it's never known to, to stop entirely. It's always slow water there out of the ground. They were able to camouflage the outside source of this with rocks and sod and so forth. And this water was brought by an underground rock-cut tunnel, not a very big one, though. It's amazing how they did it, um, to a point where this tunnel ended inside the old city wall. It was brought into a, uh, a point within their walls, and then there was a vertical 40-foot shaft. And you go from a point on the top of the hill down a long sloping gangway, then there's a platform here where you can stand, and then a 40-foot shaft that goes straight down, and you can lower your bucket on a rope and get water and heave it up again. And this was not an abundant supply of water, but um, it was mighty nice to have it in case the city was surrounded by enemies and you couldn't go out to get any other. And this was called Warren's Shaft from the name of the man that found it, and the letter it was superseded, as we'll see much later in the course, by Hezekiah's tunnel that brought uh, a more abundant supply of water to a point inside the walls, and it was a longer tunnel, 1,700 feet long, that, um, that uh, came into uh, to the pool of Siloam. Now, Jerusalem is two parallel ridges, sort of like Beaver Falls here, only we have the, east, the uh, Beaver River between. Here's the hill over by Eastvale and the hill over on this side up at Route 51 runs over there. Two parallel ridges. And there's the eastern hill and the western hill. It is now known today beyond any doubt or controversy that the uh, temple and the royal palace and these things, the city of David, are on the eastern hill facing the Kidron Valley and facing the Mount of Olives. But until um, oh, um, fairly recently, Early in this century, it was almost universally believed that the western hill was the hill of Zion, and that's where David's royal city was, and that's where Solomon's temple must have been, or at least in the early days. Now, this is disproved. The reason people said this was, which of these hills is the higher today? Well, the western one is considerably higher. In early Bible times, there was a real valley between these, the Tyropean Valley. Uh, even in Roman times, they had a viaduct, something like the bridge to nowhere out here at Brady's Run. 
But uh, it went across from the eastern hill to the western hill, so you didn't have to go clear down. You could go across this thing. It was, oh, it was maybe 50 feet up in the air, and you went across. Now, today, uh, there's only a very slight slope between the two. In the course of ages of time, it has been filled in and filled in and filled in so that uh, you would hardly notice that you are crossing what was once a deep valley between two mountain ridges. It's been filled in so much. And so if you were there and walked around, you wouldn't get out of breath climbing from the eastern hill to the top of the western hill. It would be just a nice little walk. But in David's time, this was a real valley between there. And the western hill was naturally, as the original uh, terrain was, the higher of the two. So people supposed that, of course, must have been the city of David. Now it is found out that... Um, that uh, it um, was not, and what happened was, anybody remember how, they, how the eastern hill got the way it is today? Justice Johnson? Yeah, the lower end, the south end of it. Now, the temple area was a little further north, a quarter of a mile or so, further north. So was the royal palace. The royal palace and the temple area, these two were further north, and at the very end, the south, uh, let's say, overlook or abutment of this eastern hill was higher than the temple area. And the Maccabeans, or Hasmoneans, that's uh, another name for this dynasty, 100 and something before Christ, in the second century B.C., they thought it just will not do to have another part of the hill higher than the part that the second temple was built on. It's not Solomon's temple, the second temple that replaced Solomon's temple. Therefore, what are you going to do? They couldn't very well raise up the one the temple was on, but they chopped off the top, and it must have been quite a job. No bulldozers or heavy earth-moving equipment. This was done with thick shovels and buckets and baskets, but you could do it if you keep on working at it. And they, they removed the crest of the eastern hill so that the southern end of it, where it had been a, a good high bluff there, was lowered a little bit lower, and the level of where the temple had, was and where the royal palace had been. And this made it also then lower than the western hill. So that gave rise in the Middle Ages, when the Bible geography was somewhat mixed up, to this notion that the western hill was the one. And there's no doubt about this at all today anymore. Now, um, Unger takes up here the... Um, reasons for making Jerusalem the capital. I think I mentioned those. The fact that it was neutral between the twelve tribes. And also, uh, on a hike, you could look up to it. Everywhere the Bible speaks of going up to Jerusalem, no matter where you start from, the only way to get to Jerusalem without going up is to approach it by helicopter. And you can come down to Jerusalem, but otherwise, no matter where you start from, you go up to get to Jerusalem. It's uh, the highest point to in the area there. Uh, some of the countries that David conquered, it's quite a catalog, of 356, Moabites, Arameans, Ammonites, Edomites, Amalekites, and Philistines. Models for David's organization of his government organized partly at least on Egyptian models. This is not the religious division of the country, which was that of the twelve tribes. This is a political and administrative organization. Would you say um, 
Mr. Brown, it was wrong for him to copy the crocodile worshipping Egyptians and setting up the political divisions of this country? No. No, if he'd copied their religion, this would have been. This is purely a administrative and what's a practical affair, and it probably showed his wisdom. He shopped around and saw who had the most effective organization of the country from this standpoint, and he copied it. Now, uh, God had provided back in Moses' day that they should have certain cities for the Levites, aside from whom the priests were taken. See, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. You had to be a Levite to be a priest, but you could also be just a Levite without being a priest. And um, the Levites were assistants to the priests, secondary order here. These people had no block of territory. They had um, certain cities for them. But they had not had these prior to the time of David. reason being that Canaanites held the cities, which was a good reason. And uh, David uh, got control of these places and allocated the cities to the Levites. So the actual um, use of these by the men of the tribe of Levi and their families is from the time of David. Also, six cities of refuge, three on each side of the Jordan River, also specified in the Law of Moses. What was the purpose of these? Well, um, what do you do if, um, if you've murdered somebody and the relatives of the murderer are out to get you? I've heard of people going to the county jail and saying, lock me up, I don't feel safe on the outside. Uh, according to the uh, original way things were done, if a crime like that had been committed, the shedding of blood, a murder, let's say, the nearest male kin of the victim was to uh, execute justice on the murderer. Would this be liable sometimes for some abuses? Well, According to the law of God, only the person that had committed the murder was to suffer the penalty, not his relatives and family and so on. But all too often, people would take a wholesale vengeance on the family of the murderer. And um, also, perhaps he wasn't really guilty, but they would get him anyhow. So as Unger points out, just a minute and we'll finish with this, um, in a stable kingdom, you couldn't have blood feuds like this sort of a Hatfield and McCoy deal going on, as you read about in psychology books, between the, uh, families where it was alleged a murder had been committed. And according to the provision of God, when they would get settled in the country, they were to have these cities of refuge. The person who is being pursued by the avenger of blood can go to the city of refuge, and there he is safe until the case can be adjudicated according to law or until the high priest dies, after which he can come out also with safety. And this was a, a, a security then against the misuse of uh, miscarriage of justice to protect the innocent or the unjustly pursued. And these also had not been actually allocated, specified in the law of Moses, but put into real practice in the time of David. Now we're only two questions behind schedule and we'll stop there for the day. Okay.